We've been on this journey together now for, this is the fifth week through the Shadowlands, looking at kind of the idea of suffering and the fact that all of us as humans have experienced suffering in various ways throughout our life. And it, there's commonalities in our suffering, even though suffering is wide and varied and there's, there's all kinds of different ways we can suffer. There are some emotional themes that seem to run through our experiences of suffering. So we've chosen to walk through this journey of the Shadowlands uh, through these emotional themes so that we can begin to kind of take a, a grip over them in our own lives and, and grasp after maybe God's solutions for them and see what Christianity has to say about these experiences of suffering. So the first week we noticed that in the story of Job, our journeys of suffering often start out with a kind of a disillusionment, a confusion, and then fear that kind of comes from that. When the world begins to crash around us that we were expecting to stay stable, we began to fear what might be in the future because what we did know now is unknown. It's a natural experience to have this confusion and fear kind of start our process into the journeylands or into the uh, shadowlands. Then we saw in the week after that in the story of the raising of Lazarus that it's easy for us to turn to anger in our confusion and in our fear, to try and gain control back by being angry at someone or anything that we can blame for what we're going through. We saw that Martha and Mary knew that Jesus could have come and could have saved Lazarus before he died, and so they were angry with him that he delayed and he somehow didn't make it in time to save their brother. And yet Martha eventually surrenders her anger right to the Lord, and she gives her anger over to the Lord, and, and, and Jesus blesses her in that. And Jesus feels the emotions that they're feeling. We saw the week after that, Jesus' own journey of suffering as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays in agony that night, knowing that he's going to be betrayed and that he's going to be um, beaten and he's going to be put onto the cross for all of humankind. And so he's praying in agony and he understands that the God's cup of wrath, uh, an illustration used in all of Scripture is kind of a cup being poured out and that is God's wrath being poured out on the people of Israel or, or whatever. And he knows that God's cup of wrath is coming on himself. And so he's anguishing over what he's about to face and he begins to, to question God. Is there any other way? And kind of begins to bargain. And we do this a lot of times in our own lives. We, we try to deny the pain that we're going through. We try and deny the things that are happening to us and just act like things are normal. And we try and bury it down deep. Or, or we shout out with questions to the, to the Lord and say, what are you doing in my life? And we learn from Jesus' story in the Garden of Gethsemane that it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have these feelings as we're going through moments and times of trial. Uh, it's natural. It's a part of human life. But ultimately, just like we saw Martha do in the story of Lazarus, Jesus surrenders his will to the Father's will. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then we saw last week as Jesus was preparing, we kind of rewound a little bit, as Jesus was preparing his disciples to face the sorrow and the, the sadness that they were going to feel after he dies. He's encouraging them. and He's telling them that that he's still going to give them joy in the midst of this and that he's going to prepare them and he's going to strengthen them up and that they should seek each other. They should be united with one another and not allow themselves to be isolated. And so we saw that last week sadness is a, is a common emotion and theme and that sadness can cause us to be in isolation 
from one another. And yet, Jesus' solution to it was to unite, and that's our solution too, that we would be united together as we go through times of trial, and that we wouldn't let ourselves be isolated and picked off by the enemy. So this week, we're looking at the story of Elijah, and we're specifically talking about the idea, the emotion, the feeling of loss, and how all of us go through loss at some point or another. Now, it might seem weird that we're looking at the story of Elijah for loss, because it's not really obvious on the face of it that this is something that deals with loss. I mean, it's not like Elijah is, you know, has his mom die or something like that. Uh, it's not some obvious kind of loss that's happening in Elijah's life. And yet, Elijah is dealing with extreme loss and the effects of that loss. <clears throat> if you know the story at all, the queen and the king of Israel had set up all kinds of altars all over the entire nation of northern Israel, the northern uh, kingdom of Israel, and they were asking and encouraging the people of God to worship not Yahweh, not the God who had rescued them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land, but to, re- to worship a God that was from a neighboring county, from the Canaanites. And so they were saying, come worship this new God, this God of thunder, this God of the sky, this Baal Al, or what the word in English would best loosely translate to, the husband. Uh, and so they said, come, come and worship this new God. And they set up all these temples and all these high places and all these places that people could come and sacrifice to this new God. And God wasn't happy with it. So he had his prophets prophesying against Ahab and against Jezebel. And Jezebel, to take revenge, began to slaughter all the prophets of God. Until really all there was left in the the kingdom prophesying against the things that Jezebel was doing was Elijah. And Elijah challenged Jezebel and all of her prophets to meet him at Mount Carmel. And he said, I want to have a little test here. And they went to this mountain, and Elijah, with great confidence in the calling that the Lord had given to him, sets up this challenge with all the prophets and says, how about you build an altar and put on it wood and everything, and then pray to your God and let's see if Baal can light your altar on fire. And so all the hundred prophets of Baal are there and they're dancing around and they're chanting and for many, many days go by and there's no fire. And Elijah the whole time is taunting them. He's, he's asking them that their God is asleep somewhere, maybe, or that if he's impotent, that he doesn't have the ability to do this act. And so he's taunting them over and over again. And finally, Elijah decides to build his own altar. So he gets his assistants to come and bring all this wood. And they build this big altar. And he tells them to douse it with water. And they keep dousing it with water until it's so soaked that there's no way this thing is going to set on fire. And then he prays to God. And he says, what? Lord, would you light this on fire? And all of a sudden, a bolt of thunder comes down and it ignites and it's on fire, and everybody is astonished at the reality, the truth of the God, the living God that Elijah has been proclaiming this entire time. Now, the interesting thing about this, if you come tonight to my Israel presentation, I went to Mount Carmel. It's a pretty cool place, and I stood on top of that hill, and you can see for miles and miles and miles around Mount Carmel. In fact, it's probably very likely that God or that Elijah chose this location as a challenge against the Baal prophets because of its visibility in the northern kingdom. There would have been cities for literally hundreds of miles that would have been able to see this fire 
on top of this hill when it was struck because of the, how far-reaching uh, this mountain is in its visibility for the northern kingdom. And so as he had this happen, everybody in the country would have been all of a sudden notified and rumor would have spread that the true God, the real God of Israel, Yahweh, had defeated the false God, Baal. And even though this false God supposedly was the God of thunder, it was Yahweh who brought a lightning bolt down and set his altar on fire. And Baal did nothing. Now, after this, Elijah slaughters all the prophets uh, and he begins to walk his way towards the capital of the northern Israel kingdom. And as he's walking his way, confidently thinking, ha, I just proved my God is better than Baal. I just proved that people should repent of their worship of Baal and they should return to the Lord God. Surely I'm going to be met with this great enthusiasm when I come into the capital. And instead, he gets a messenger who comes and greets him. And what's the messenger say? The messenger says, yeah, if you keep coming towards the capital, you're dead, buddy. Because Jezebel's out for you now. She has promised that you are going to be like one of the prophets you killed within a day from now. And she has set everybody to come and kill you. And so he flees for his life. He flees for his life. The, the thing about this, in the reason why I think this is loss for Elijah, is because Elijah has sacrificed everything for the service of his God. Everything. And finally he sees God victorious over his enemies and he expects, he has this idea in his mind that there's going to be some kind of resultant victorious return of worship of Yahweh among the northern kingdom of Israel. And instead what he sees is more opposition, more defeat, more failure. Nobody's repenting. Everybody's still bowing to Baal, and Jezebel is more powerful than ever and promised that she's going to kill him. This is an extreme loss. And I think that when we look at this, we recognize that loss is common to all of our lives. We all experience loss, and it doesn't just entail losing someone that we love. Loss does not just mean the death of someone that we love. We tend to think of it that way, we tend to look at it that way, but that's not what it is. What it is instead is that it's any change of our expectation or anything that we held dear being taken away from us. That's what we feel loss. And so we feel loss all the time, right? We feel loss when something good happens. Sometimes we might be in a job for 20 years and we hate that job. And then we get a new job and we start this new job. We might feel a sense of loss because our normal that we had for so long is now gone. It's changed. It's upended. And, and it, I think a lot of people struggle with this when they have this kind of a change in their life and they think everything's positive and all of a sudden they start struggling with the signs of kind of depression and sadness. They wonder, what's wrong with me? What's going on? How many of you have ever experienced this before? A few of you. Right? A lot of people work their whole lives so that they can retire. And then they retire and they're like, now what? <laughs> and they struggle with a little bit of depression at a sense of loss right, in their lives because they had this focus, this purpose for so long and then all of a sudden it's, it's gone. Many people don't recognize that when somebody's going through divorce, it is tantamount to losing a loved one. 
something you've placed so much energy in that you hoped would last your whole life, that you had made vows to, and all of a sudden, now it is gone, you're going to feel a loss. And so loss comes in all kinds of forms, all kinds of ways. And so when Elijah is running for his life, he has lost what he thought was a victory. He thought was a win. He thought it was over, that God has finally conquered and God has finally fulfilled His promises. And then all of a sudden, no, more hardship is on the way, buddy. And so he begins to feel this deep sense of loss and he, he goes out to the desert and it says that he leaves his servant behind. Now, this is a key thing. He doesn't have a servant because he's wealthy, because he's this big you know, magnate and he's built a lot of money up and he's hired a servant to follow him around. He has a servant. Why? Because he's a prophet. Because he is a minister of God's people. And so this servant is there as kind of like an apprentice, as somebody who's working with him in ministry. So when he leaves his servant to go out into the desert by himself, what he's really doing is he's resigning. He's saying, I quit. I'm done. Forget this whole ministry thing. It's over. And we see the effects of that because he finds a solitary broom tree, this kind of tree that fans out real shallow low over the earth. And he finds this solitary broom tree out there in the wilderness and he just collapses underneath and he's just like, kill me, God, whatever. I'm done with it. I'm done. I'm finished. And he refuses to get up. He refuses to go anywhere. What does that sound like to you guys? Depression. It sounds a heck of a lot like depression. Elijah was suffering from what we would call depression major or whatever in the Diagnosis and Service Manual of the, uh, the Psychiatric Association. And so this is, this is a real mental health issue. This is him suffering underneath a deep and dark depression where he wants to die and he does not want to continue on with his life and he doesn't even want to get up anymore. Loss is common to all of us. And with loss, I think depression is something that easily seeks in. It's something different than sadness. Sadness, we talked about last week, can come and can occur without depression. But depression is something that crushes our motivation to do anything, right? How many of you have ever suffered with any kind of depression before? Good. A few of you brave enough to raise your hands. I have many times. You see, right now in America, they say that about... 6.7%, about 16 million adults have suffered with depression in the last 12 months. And if you take those statistics to be true, that means that most adults at some point in their life are going to suffer with depression. And the rates are even higher for adolescents. It's somewhere around 10 to 11% for adolescents. So that means all of us as humans have experienced some kind of depression of our lives where we have lost motivation to go on, when we are struggling with just waking up in the morning and find the motivation to brush our teeth and to get going for the day. It's a common experience. And we should stop giving each other such a hard time when we notice it in each other, right? Because we all have suffered from it probably at some point in our lives. And we should have more grace and patience towards those who are suffering in it around us. And we should understand what they're going through and that it's not something they're choosing to be in, but it's something that they're stuck in. 
And we should minister to them and care for them and love them in the same way that God does. Because what we see in this story with Elijah is that God gives incredible grace in times of loss and depression. God gives incredible grace in times of loss and depression. Now, now think about this. Think about this story. Elijah is sitting under a tree and saying, just kill me now, God. Just kill me now. And he falls asleep in his depression, unable to get up. And he wakes up to what? An angel. Uh, sir? Um, sir, excuse me. Sir? Sir? I, I baked you a cake. <laughs> this is how God responds to Elijah's depression. Right? This is how God responds to Elijah's sense of loss. Not... Get up and pull up your bootstraps. Get on with life. You're a wuss for feeling this, right? He didn't say that, did he? No, he comes patiently beside Elijah. He sends an angel to bake him a cake on a rock and to wake him up gently and say, eat, eat. Come on, come on, eat. You're going to need this. God gives incredible grace and patience to Elijah in the midst of his suffering. If we look at the example of Jesus, we can see God's graciousness to those who are suffering most around him in so many different stories. Imagine and think about the story of the woman who had been bleeding for years and years and years. She was considered unclean. She wasn't allowed to touch anybody. She was usually ostracated to one particular place in her family or outside of the gates of the city so that she couldn't make other people unclean. And here she is waiting for Jesus to pass by and she's thinking in her mind, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, right? And it should have been, when she did that audacious act, it should have been that Jesus turned around and rebuked her. But that's not what we see. What do we see? Jesus, when he senses the power go out of him and that she is actually, her faith has healed her, he turns to find her and he gives her grace and mercy and hope. He comforts her. We see this in the story when he's out in Bethsaida. And there's this blind man, and the blind man's begging, Son of David, Son of David, come, heal me, heal me. And everybody's telling him, be quiet. Don't bother the teacher. He's got more important things to do. And, but what does Jesus do? Turns to him and says, Son, what, what would you have me do? Will you heal me. Heal my blindness. And Jesus heals his blindness. We see in the story of the leper, Early in Jesus' ministry, then these are people that have a disease that they don't understand how it's contracted, and so they are fearful of it. And so these people are, are cordoned off, they're, they're quarantined, and they're, they're told, you're not allowed to touch anybody or anything. You're, you are a diseased person that we, we can't be around because we don't want this spreading. And so nobody would give affection or touch a leper, and yet Jesus, when approached by a leper, touches him and heals him. Right? The grace and the mercy of Jesus. When he's visiting later the house of the leper and he's eating and reclining with all the teachers of the area, a woman comes in. And, and distraught in her sinfulness and looking for some kind of forgiveness, looking for some kind of wholeness and healing, she comes and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with her own tears, begins to wipe his feet with her hair. 
Everybody around is appalled at what she's doing because she's known to be a sinner and she's known to be unclean. And yet, when Jesus is confronted with this fact, what does he say? He said, what she's done for me is beautiful, right? I came into this house and none of you offered to wash my feet. And yet that's customary in a home. And here, this woman has washed my feet with her tears and wiped it with her hair. Jesus gives comfort and mercy to those that are suffering around him over and over and over again. So we see God's willingness to give us mercy and to give us grace in the midst of our suffering. I think the interesting thing about the story of Elijah is that when God calls him out of the cave, it isn't in this clamorous wind or in this horrible earthquake or in this terrible fire, right? Those are all ways that God has used in the past already in the story of God with the people of Israel to get the attention of somebody. But it isn't what he uses with Elijah because Elijah is suffering. What does he use? Silence. A gentleness. A a provoking for him to come out. Right? And to seek the Lord. And the Lord just continually asks him over and over again, what are you doing here? (laughs) Right? Not an accusation, not not grandiose statements, just asks Elijah to explain, explain himself and what he's going through. And he listens. He listens to Elijah. Not just once, but twice. Explain all the things that he's going through. I just read an article yesterday about how we deal with people who are going through times of suffering. And it, and it's, it was a list of things to not say to go to someone who is in suffering. And I was reading it thinking, oh, I've done that. I've done that. Oh, I think I did that last week. <laughs> As human beings, we are so uh, uncomfortable with suffering that's, that's not ours. Even, even our own suffering, we're uncomfortable. But when it's not ours, we have no idea how to react to it. We have no idea what to do. So we end up trying to do whatever does what makes us feel comfortable. And yet, God's example here, and we see examples throughout Scripture, is that we do, we are supposed to do whatever it is that ministers to the person who's suffering the most. To put ourselves in their shoes, to think about them, to sit with them, to be silent with them, and to be okay with the silence. To sit with them and to listen to them and, and just allow them to share their pain with us and to feel their pain with them. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus did. I think the final thing we see in this story is that God supplies restoration and new purpose in the midst of loss and suffering. God supplies restoration and new person. This may not sound right because sometimes in the midst of our suffering, God makes no sense. And yet, I can promise you that God is in the midst of your suffering and God is in the midst of what is happening to you and he is going to bring it about for your good and for his good at the end of time. You might not see it in your entire lifetime. But we are called to trust God that that's what he's doing, and to look towards his actions of the past to know that he's good for that promise and to surrender ourselves to him. And so sometimes it calls us to reorient our lives, 
right? Elijah. Elijah had this expectation that everything was victorious and everything was now going to just change for him and he was going to be on top of all of the things in Israel and, and that people were going to be turning to him and looking to him to restore the worship of the one true God. And yet he recognizes that that's not what God had planned all along. And so he has to reorient himself and he has to begin to follow after what God did have planned. And so what is God's plan? Go, anoint these two kings who I'm going to use as my servants. One of them, by the way, not even a Jew, a Gentile. And then go and you're going to find this guy and he's going to be the one that you anoint with your mantle so that he can take up the role of being the prophet over Israel because you're not going to see the finish of your work. And so Elijah has to reorient his life towards God's will and out of his own thinking and what he was expecting to happen. And he begins to follow after what God desires to happen. What an amazing thing that he was called to pass on his work and his life to someone else. Because I think as we as Christians are together in community, that's one of the things we're called to do with each other is to pass on our experiences in life to each other so that we can learn and we can grow and we can all become more like Jesus because of the example that we have of those who have gone before us. And so many of you who have lived long lives of faithfulness to God, we need you desperately. Don't think your job is done. You are called to share your experiences, to share the suffering that you've been through and how God has brought you through it with those of us who have yet to go through it so that we might be strengthened in the day that we come to those experiences. Ultimately, ultimately we're called to rely on the one who suffered for us. Next week, our theme is no longer one of the emotions that we feel in the midst of suffering. It's an emotion we hope we feel in the midst of suffering. And it's the emotion of hope. And we're going to look at Jesus suffering on the cross and the hope that he gives to us and that how God in Jesus turned suffering into a blessing. Into our hope for all eternity. But as you're going through this time of loss and feeling the depression of it, Make sure that you recognize that others around you are going through it too. That God will give you grace in the midst of it and that we are to give each other grace in the midst of it. And that even when we are in the midst of it, God can provide us with new purpose and restore us with new energy so that we might worship him. Amen.